you know, this is a really tough job and, and one that is prone to burnout. Coming 15 minutes late? I don't care how smart you are, they'd like to take you out and shoot you. Nobody in an ophthalmologist's office is doing anything but supporting that ophthalmologist. All right, it's December 2011. Greg Henry here with Rick Bucata, and we are both in Los Angeles so that there's no none of this Skyping business we have to contend with. Well, Rick, we're not only at Los Angeles, we're at Casa Babalu, <laughs> and where the deer and the antelope play. And actually, as we were walking in, there's a herd of deer sitting here. Yeah, Unbelievable. The, uh, I think uh, one uh, tape we did recently, I pointed out the bear that was out that window now. <laughs> yes. Now there are four deer, which are the food of the bear. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's good that we have an ecosystem here. That's that's a good thing. Well, uh, it's been a it's been a busy month. I've been traveling and uh, various places. I've been to England to visit the Queen. The Queen couldn't show up, but Princess Anne did, and it was uh, quite an adventure. Well, we've had quite an adventure, too. Uh, we have had four days with no electricity. We were one of the 100,000 people who had no electricity from this windstorm, this famous Santa Ana winds in California. And we've been here 30 years, and we've never had anything like this. Uh, the amount of trees that are down. You, we just drove uh, up to Ricky's house here and saw all of the damage, and it's still been a week, and it still looks like a, a wreck. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so much for uh, being in paradise here in Southern California. Yeah, but the sun is shining here, yeah, and yeah. it's about 70 <laughs> degrees. Other than that... Other than that, it's okay. Yeah. So, Rick, what are we going to talk about today? Our topic is burnout. Well, I'm glad that you brought that topic up because this uh, this year at the National ASAP meeting, I did a panel with uh, Tom Mayer and a few other folks that you would know that actually looked at this entire question of how a, a, an emergency doc who's a director actually looks at their people and is looking for these sorts of things. And I believe that this uh, burnout question is one which we, we sort of shut our eyes and we'd like to pretend doesn't exist. And it does exist. And we really need to get into it a little bit. Yeah, actually, we're going to see that exists substantially. And the link between burnout and risk management is pretty obvious. Well, I, I think that unhappy doctors uh, give give care which is less than humane in nature and there's no question that that abruptness breeds contempt and as soon as the patient feels that uh, you've you've got a greater risk for loss yeah there's no question that we in emergency medicine have to do two things we have to be good doctors in terms of our technical knowledge but we also have to be good showmen and a lot of people just don't want to acknowledge that part but the fact is particularly now that more and more hospitals are drilling down to patient satisfaction studies related to individual doctors, not just to the department. And I know it pisses off everybody, but the fact of the matter is, is that when you should turn it around and you need to have gone to the emergency department as a patient or have a family member as a patient to just understand how important and disproportionately important it is that the interactions between you and the caregivers are really, really positive because they are vulnerable, they're hurting, they're, they're not in a good position. And so this issue about you know making them feel want, uh, that you're glad they're there, you're there to help, and all of those things, which we hear all and all over and over again, 
they're disproportionately important in the emergency department. Well, last night we had dinner at a place where could that woman who took care of the table been more enthusiastic than she was, Rick? No, no she was ter- terrific. She was terrific, and and uh, they went out of the way to uh, <laughs> to to make things nice for us. It was it was unbelievable. And you know what? We'll probably go back there again and spend our money. Well, we were there a week ago before that. So yeah. in any case, yes, it does matter, and. Um, the idea of just focusing on your medical competence just doesn't work. Right. I, I think the other thing that we, the other aspect of burnout is the fact that when you're 25 and 30, you can pretty much put up with anything short periods of time. It's the long haul. It's the, it's the career that we have to look at. And I'll tell you the one question when I, when I mentor uh, residents in emergency medicine, very few of them ask this question when they go out for a job. What are you going to do to help me mature and advance my career? And I think that issue is so important that if all it is is a job where you're showing up, seeing patients going home, What's reinfusing your enthusiasm, your desire to learn and be better? And if the director doesn't take that as a serious part of their job, I don't know who does, Rick. Well, you know, I actually I gave a talk on burnout, uh, and one of the themes was: is uh, emergency medicine a job or a career? Because there is a distinction. Oh, it, it's a huge distinction, and. I'm not judging this. I, I, I have had certain number of docs who are actually quite excellent docs who said, I want to work my shifts, I want to make my money, but my other real passion in life is X or Y. I had one guy who was a country singer. I had somebody else who had another job. Um, well, actually, he was in physics. Uh, we have all kinds of folks who have other goals. But I think for the vast majority of us, this is what we're going to do for a living. All right, so let's go through what we're going to do. First of all, we're going to go and do a little bit about um, some of the ABEM statistics on burnout uh, that they came up with. We're going to talk about what is burnout. We're going to talk about uh, some stats and and, uh, regarding burnout, but then we're going to get to the nitty-gritty. We're going to give you about 15 uh, things to consider to limit your risk of Becoming burned. Yeah, you know, uh, we're a very politically correct show, Rick, and the term burnout isn't used much anymore. What they want to now talk about is career satisfaction. Career satisfaction. Yeah, yes, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, I know. But it's burnout. That's the question. So tell us about the, the ABEM studies. Well, you know, uh, ABEM did a series of three studies uh, on bur- on yeah it wasn't burnout career satisfaction yes pardon me. yes uh, 1994 1999 and 2004 so every five years they did a this this study now one of the things that annoys me uh, or bothers me is the last one was in 2004 so where is the 2009 study haven't seen it yet haven't seen it because it probably doesn't exist and I don't understand the whole point of this is to watch over time the maturation of a specialty and to drop out the 2009 what they should have done is I don't understand it it's not because they don't have enough money you know basically ABM's a freaking printing press yes uh, <laughs> we understand that uh, it's unbelievable so what's the story ABM but in any case Let's start with what they do. What they do have, they basically surveyed uh, born certified uh, 
uh, doctors, or actually, I, I can't even say that because a lot of the doctors in the beginning survey were not board certified. 1999, that was the case. Well, actually, in 94, they uh, what you had was a lot of us uh, the uh, old guys who may not have been originally trained in emergency medicine, but uh, were actually certified in emergency medicine. So the real changeover was, after all, they're ABEM people. So ABEM had to have some contact with them, but it's whether they were emergency medicine trained versus whether they had another training and then moved into well, you emergency know, medicine. My notes say that half the respondents to the initial survey, the one in 1994, were not EM board certified. Women were underrepresented and the years in practice were substantially less than they are now. And one of the whole things for doing these surveys over time is people are working in these specialties longer and longer and longer. And therefore, you should see something reflecting maybe an increased risk of burnout, that kind of thing, which would you would normally expect. By the way, if uh, when you say that women were underrepresented, it was it's very uh, very significant. I think that if you look back on my career, going back to entering medical school, nineteen sixty eight, we where there were out of a class of two hundred, there were twelve women. Uh, today at the University of Michigan, it's 51% women. Right. So we have seen in the last 30, 40 years a huge change in, in who's going to be represented. And I don't think that's insignificant in this kind of work because people have different career goals and aspirations, and we should respect that. Let's look at a couple of points uh, from this survey. The most recent one, which is in 2004, 65% of the surveyed individuals rated their career satisfaction as high, while 13% noted low satisfaction or dissatisfaction, which is, uh, you know, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, but, it's, but 65% uh, had high satisfaction. I think emergency medicine always wants to consider itself different than the other specialties. Radiology did a very similar study and, again, had very similar numbers. It's not that we're so different from all the other mature specialties. Two-thirds, you know, you're not talking two-thirds, have high satisfaction. That's pretty good. Yes, but remember, that was in 2004. This is now 2011. Those same doctors are still practicing. So is there a change in their point of view six or seven years later? We don't know that. We, we don't, we we don't know that. That's correct. It's, it's good to note that 31% in 2004 noted some serious problems with burnout. Whether that's gone up or not, I think it's real hard to know at this point in time. So there you have it. 65% said, yeah, I'm satisfied. But then 31% said, uh, I'm having some serious issues with burnout. Yep. So there's a, a you know, it may, there may be some kind of intellectual conflict there. Yeah. Before we go any further, Rick, we need to talk about what we mean by burnout and how it's defined. Because there are, a, a, this is one of those things where people have actually now got some numbers, they've got some systems, and the Maslach and, uh, and Jackson inventory has been set up to kind of decide whether we actually have burnout or not. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like pornography. You recognize it when you see it, but they have scientifically approached it. They have a burnout index uh, inventory that people do, but they didn't come up with the word burnout. I'm this is this is for a little uh, coffee, uh, you know, um, cocktail party chit chat. Yes, yes, yes. Doctor Freudenberger, 
Dr. Freudenberger. Yeah. <laughs> in, in 1974, he gets credit for coming up with the word. However, Maslach and Jackson basically have distilled down what they believe to be the three essential components of burnout. Yes. Number one, emotional exhaustion, tired, somatic symptoms, this hurts, that hurts, achiness, the, uh, diminished um, emotional resources. You, get the, you got the blahs. Blahs, right. Number two is really cool because this really relates to emergency medicine. It's called depersonalization. What does that mean in English? Cynical attitudes towards your clients, treating them as objects. Now, you, tell me that that doesn't happen in emergency medicine. Well, of course medicine. it does, but, but I think it's, uh, it's just like there's none of us who don't have a day or two when we're not a little tired or a little down. But the great skill of the emergency doctor is to, is to wipe that slate clean and when the shift starts bring enthusiasm to the project. It's when you can't get it up for the project that day that you've got a serious problem. And this depersonalization, there's always going to be that group of patients, I believe, who bring out, let's say, some bad character in all of us. However, most of us actually do enjoy talking to the patients. We learn things. We laugh. We find things that are fun. I worry about that guy who cannot enjoy the patients. Well, obviously, there's going to be a, a gradation here. And, yes. And there are going to be some doctors who disproportionately view the patients as a pain in the butt. And, there are, uh, and, and you know, all, all doctors basically kind of roll their eyes every once in a while when there's a frequent flyer coming back and saying, oh, geez, kind of thing. But there is this. I think this relates to a matter of magnitude. You, there are physicians who kind of view the patient as the enemy, one after the other after the other. Yeah. The other thing is they tend to minimize suffering. That is, uh, That's a good point. When, the, when they see patients in there with pain, if you haven't had pain, you don't know about this. You know, I think I became a better doctor. There, there are three things that made me a better doctor. Having kids, you know, going through that process, raising kids, made me much more sensitive when a parent came in with complaints about their kid. You kind of understand what that is. Uh, having had a couple of medical experiences, like a six-vessel bypass and a kidney stone or two, I think made me more aware of these kinds of things. Maybe as we age and have had a little suffering of our own, maybe it makes us better doctors. Well, maybe a red flag to a physician who is going through this burnout process is that they may be the chintzy pain uh, treating doctors. The right. uh, Here's the two milligrams of this or that kind of thing. You see, And you see them all the time. Yep. The third thing. Lack of personal accomplishment, feelings of incompetence, inefficiency, and inadequacy. So you don't feel good as, about yourself as a physician. Um, you, uh, you have some substantial doubts. Right. We're going to come up at, at the end of this. We're going to come up with some ways to, to, uh, to treat this, to attack this. But I'll say right now, when, whenever I'm counseling residents, when they're looking for a job, I always ask them to look and see what other things this job opportunity can give them that they can attach themselves to. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah, and, and, and you have to have something other than the patients to help boost your own ego and image and want to keep learning. No Ma question. Maslach and Jackson basically said, of the three, 
The part relating to emotional exhaustion was probably the most important, where you just can't get out of bed to do this job. You just don't have any passion for it anymore. Well, uh, you know, when you take uh, the, we'll call it, uh, job satisfaction, and you look at the other things going on in a physician's life, there is no question that there are three areas where uh, if you sit around at the table with guys who are directors of departments and have run things, there are three things you look for. It's divorce, uh, depression, and drugs. And in our case, it's almost always alcohol is still the principal drug of abuse for doctors. Uh, we look at those three things and say, what's going on? And the place where this really falls apart is in their interpersonal relationships, i.e. their marriage. And it's amazing the number of docs who will come to the point of practically living in their car, uh, still making it into work. Uh, they hide this kind of problem for a very long oh, period Oh, yeah, we're going to get into the hiding uh, oh. in a bit. The, it's it's a concern, though, about chicken versus egg. Of course. Because you can also envision, if you're having problems at work, that you bring that home and it starts affecting your relationship at home. So it's chicken, egg. And then there's all of this issue about maladaptive coping mechanisms, and that equals alcohol and drugs. So you, just as you mentioned, it could start at home. You could develop an alcohol problem at home, and that basically is going to screw up your work. Your work can be the cause of your alcohol problem as well. Yeah. I, by the way, everybody who was involved in our panel uh, said the same thing. As soon as I mentioned, you know, keys to look for, the number one is the doctor who's chronically late for work. They, they're sending you a message, which is, I don't want to be there. And nothing pisses the other doctors off as much as somebody who's now, it's now 10 after the hour or 15 after the hour. Nothing makes you a hero in the department like coming 15 minutes early. Right. Coming 15 minutes late, I don't care how smart you are, they'd like to take you out and shoot you. Right, and it doesn't have to be 15 minutes. It could be five minutes. Five it's minutes. Just that it is just that it's consistent. This doctor is always, always late. Yes, and, and I, I, you know, naturally as docs sitting around talking about this, we chuckled a little bit and said, oh, you've noticed that too. Then all of a sudden the move became much more serious, and everybody said, it is one of those things that everybody has noticed and looked for and just refuses to comment on. In fact, I know one group that basically said, if you're late, if you're 10 minutes late, we're going to dock you two hours. Uh, and then the next time you're 10 minutes late, it's three hours because they wanted to s send the message that this is important stuff. We care about this kind of thing. One of the consequences of all of this is the potential to shorten your career, and we'll get more specifically into the, what that means, but uh, going through this literature, death by suicide is about 70% more likely among male physicians than among other professionals, and they point out 250 to 400 uh, times greater among female physicians, which I didn't know. They talk about 400 doctors a year commit suicide. God. And, and why do we think that is, Rick? Why, why would women f find this the, the way to terminate things? Anybody have any ideas about this? Well, I'm sure people have ideas. Uh, we have some st statistics that we can go through and maybe we can expand on as we go through them. Um, 
I think that these were from the ABEM survey. Females with children working in academic settings were less productive and less satisfied with their careers versus males. And I think it relates to this tension between having kids and working. And, yeah, you know. I, I think there's a, lo- a higher mountain for women to climb. I really do because they have to be, they're still expected to run homes uh, and, and children and that sort of thing and have a full-time job. I, I don't think that that's a surprise to me that that the the duties which they carry, or at least the weight and the thought of those duties, is is probably higher. It, it's probably true. Well, you know, look at the second st- uh, stat here, Greg. That um, about women who responded to the what they call the women's physician health study. Well, oh, I, I mean, forty percent of women emergency physicians who responded to that, said that uh, they would not pursue a career in medicine or healthcare again. 40%. There's something fundamentally wrong with that because you have a job which is makes you in the, in the uh, to use an Occupy Wall Street term, you're in the 1%. You're doing pretty well. It comes with high esteem and, and social value. And 40% wouldn't do it again? What would they do? I mean, by the way, this reminds me of the doctor's dining room conversation. You always have somebody who says, oh, I should have gone into to international investment banking. Get yourself a life. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah, we're going to that's one of my 15 points uh, that we're going to get into. Uh, Physicians in professional leadership positions of any kind report less uh, career dissatisfaction and stress. Um, it may mean they do less shifts. But they, these are the doctors who have now risen to the point of leadership in the group. They have more influence. Uh, more influence. They have more power. They have. Uh, they are uh, more in control of the situation. They have become the leaders, and so you would expect that they would have less um, issues with dissatisfaction. I, I have a slightly different take on that, and I think it's because when you take one of those positions, you're less insular. That means you have to be in contact, not just with your peer physicians and nurses, but with the other people who take and sample your product. And I think it gives you a different perspective of looking at how you evaluate what people think on the outside. I I don't think anything was as valuable for me as having to sit down and read the letters of complaint and having to answer those things to make us ask critical questions about how we can make the product uh, better. And I think that's good. By the way, uh, physicians in general are reporting not enough time for personal life um, and, 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 and low career satisfaction. And they, those people who report this low, this uh, personal life problem are twice as likely to experience a burnout situation. Well, maybe that relates to uh, working too much. They're basically saying, I don't have enough time for my personal life. And um, this is going to be one of the 15 things we're going to talk about in terms of don't overdo your working. Right, exactly. Um, now, I don't know how fatigue figures into that because... Well, Maslach said that was the worst part of it. If you, if, you, if you distill down all of the elements, fatigue about your work, you know, no energy for it is one of the key points in, yeah. in uh, defining uh, burnout. But I think, you know, you and I have to look at it differently, Rick, only because we consciously arranged a lot of things in our lives 
to stimulate those practices. Yeah, we're going to talk about that coming up, too. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, I don't think, oh, yeah. One of them pointed out here about uh, teaching, whether it be students, residents, EMS people, was associated with high levels of career satisfaction, as was involvement with medical politics and consulting. So this basically says to try and expand what you do from direct patient care to mentoring, uh, getting involved in the hospital's politics, getting on this committee or that committee, um, uh, expanding your um, your. Uh, your career in terms of it's not only direct patient care, but I do this and I do that and then I do this and this. And it's all related to emergency medicine. It's interesting that the only people you ever ask to do anything are people who are already overburdened and busy. And you know why? Because they're the ones who actually get things done. When we were looking at Michigan ASAP, and at that time, I guess there were about 1,200 members, there were about 40 who did everything, uh, taught the courses, uh, did no, this, did that, and and it was very funny that it's not the amount of work they were doing that tired them out. A lot of those people, the more work they did, the more invigorated they became. Right. A lot of those things are, uh, can be very um, pleasurable and energizing. Yep. And- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the the other thing is, I think emergency docs more than any other doctors do not work with anybody. They work alongside somebody. You know, if there's two doctors working in the department and there is no output to express interesting cases, that sort of thing, what really happens is you you play next to each other, but you don't have interaction, and there can be a real lack of collegial uh, support uh, when, when there's nobody but you seeing a case. When I used to work in a private hospital with no residents, or medical students, when I had a great case, I always felt bad because I wish I had somebody to show the case to just from a learning and a teaching standpoint. Well, the other thing that is allied to that is the feeling that physicians have no say over their working environment, that uh, it's uh, they got to do it the way somebody else has uh, told them to do it. But as a result, there's long waiting times, there's holding patients, and, and physicians feel frustrated because they have to work in this dysfunctional environment that they seem to have no ability to impact. They're the only specialists who uh, who never have any control over the support staff who work with them. Uh, you know, I think I've, I've probably pontificated on this in the past, but nobody, nobody in an ophthalmologist's office is doing anything but supporting that ophthalmologist. He would never walk into a room where the patient hadn't had their vision taken, their, their correction already done, their eyes dilated, the pressure taken. We walk in uh, to see a patient. They're not prepared. They're not properly undressed. The equipment isn't in the room. You know, at a certain point in time, um, you don't get the respect that other specialists get only because they don't work for you. The support staff works for the hospital. I had a discussion with a guy who who left emergency medicine went into urgent care medicine he owns the practice everybody works for him and he says it's like a night and day experience the other people there make it a pleasure for him to work because they know what he wants to have done right another thing that's come up in these surveys is that 
Physicians want to believe that they're fairly compensated. They, they want to feel that they're not being taken advantage of um, economically in terms of the, the, what their pay is for the number of patients they see. And they also want, and it's linked to that, job security. They don't, they don't want to be having a gun to their head that they can be terminated at will at any second, despite the fact that you've put in five years at this place and given it your heart and soul. So job satisfaction and uh, a belief that you are being reasonably paid is are still um, important in this equation. Yeah, if it hasn't come to everybody's attention, the glory days are over. Uh, the chances that, uh, well, I'll make the statement again, those doctors who are only earning 25% less than they're making now in the next five years will be the winners. Uh, we are set, if there is no change in Congress, that there's going to be a 23% decrease in Medicare reimbursement that is automatically triggered. Yeah, I think the days of rapidly increasing monies for work in medicine uh, you might as well you might as well bend over and kiss your butt goodbye on this one because it's not going to continue. And then there's a whole list of stressors, which, when added together, anybody could say, you know, this is a really tough job, and and one that is prone to burnout disproportionately. This, so. this is a tough job. I mean, emergency medicine is a in the mud, slinging your fists, getting the work done job. And you know, God forgive me, but I loved it. Uh, the the bottom line was we're fixers. We we make things work, and I like that kind of stuff. But it's very much your personality. I think to some extent, the specialty chooses the people who go into it. By it's what you can put up with every day. A good dermatologist would probably never like to be an emergency doctor. Yeah, that's right. They talk about. Underlying personality traits, like we might need to take some kind of Rorschach uh, test to get into Rick, emergency We're not going to do that here because this is a family show. <laughs> we're not talking about So they're about talking that. about personality traits that may uh, make your wiring such that you don't fit into emergency medicine. Uh, one of the things that I specifically uh, read was fear of uncertainty. There are those people who just have a great deal of trouble making decisions and the idea is they're going to get sued, and they're afraid of that, and it's decision after decision after decision, and they just don't make decisions well. Well, the other thing is when certain things happen in your career affects how the rest of the career will go. There's some very good data now that the PIAA is accumulating to, as to what age you were when you got your first lawsuit. Those doctors who are in the first two years out and they get sued, it is a huge, negative, depressing event. Why? Because they don't have 20 years of successes uh, to, to garner point. that against. And so if you look at what happens, their behaviors, their test-ordering behaviors, all those other sorts of things, and their bitterness quotient toward the patients and the process is different. Then there's the middle group. And the other group I think that is dangerous is if you're near the very end of your career, because, you know, these suits go on for five years and seven years. Who wants to end their career under the stress of a lawsuit? Every day, that weighs on you like a ton of bricks. And I think that at when things happen in your career does affect the career itself. So your advice here is try not to get sued early on. Try not to get sued early on. And near the end, 
sometimes uh, sometimes it, you got to take into into account there are a lot of people you did a lot of good for and uh, and relax let the let the process happen. Well, there's a couple of other other obvious reasons why people who work emergency medicine are prone to burnout. They talk about night shifts, sleep disturbances. That's a great, and you know, as you get older, that becomes more and more of an issue. Right. Problems with subspecialty coverage, so you feel like you're going to be let out to hang because you can't get the ENT doc in when the nosebleed is exsanguinating. Um, Feelings of inadequate knowledge and lack of opportunity to attend conferences. This is a recurring theme that these doctors who are burned out generally don't have a great ego strength regarding the quality of their practice. Well, and it's not just attending conferences. It's attending EMA conferences. Oh, get that always causes stress in patients. Um, let me comment on a couple of those because the young and the old do not understand it. I have all kinds of residents I mentor who say, gee, this is a great job. I only have to work 12, 12 to 13-hour shifts a, a month. And I say, I hope that changes as you age because I honestly believe we only have so many good, intense hours in us. And that diminishes as we age. I mean, why the hell would you? Because if, if you work a 12-hour shift, you're there for two more hours finishing things up. Fair statement? Often. You're dead. If you look at what d- diminishes in me personally, boy, that first hour that I'm working, hi, thanks for coming in. Great to see you. You get near the 12th hour, and it's, yeah, what do you want? Yeah, or make my day, sucker. I mean, we can't have that, Rick. Well, we've talked about this before. Lengths of shifts, we think, and it's been noted by others, are a substantial risk factor. 12-hour shifts in uh, in a department that's seeing 60 patients, uh, a, a single department where you're the doctor, you're seeing 60 patients a day, 12-hour shifts, you, you'll regret it. You'll regret it over time. You said, yeah, well, right now I only have to work three shifts a week to get my reasonable amount of hours in. But you will learn to hate emergency medicine by, yep. by doing that. And I know so many physicians who have said they went from 12 hours to eight hours and said they will never ever go back exactly uh the other thing is if you got 12 hour shifts at a certain age split those shifts you know at age 65 and in case there's anybody listening to this i hope there's somebody listening but if they believe for one second that you're going to retire at age 62 or 63 you're smoking dope uh and as you get to be 66 67 68 i think if you could work six hours, uh, do you make a little less money? Yeah. But you know, by that time, you've bought all the sets of dishes you want. Your kids have through college. Come on. You know, have something that's fun. And when you go home, you're not so damn dead that you can't live the rest of your life. Yeah, we had six-hour shifts for some of our, uh, some of our doctors. For, uh, one, other, one other comment is we're the only people who tolerate... Um, it's not uh, inadequate numbers of staff. It's the type of staff. Why would a physician who ca- who makes $250,000 a year not have somebody entering their computer data, uh, not recording what they're doing? I See, I think that we have spent almost no money and no research. If you read the damn journals, how much research is done on physician um, uh, movement of patients, on their on how do you maximize the value of physician knowledge base uh, 
to get the maximum return on that. We haven't done it. No, we haven't at all. And it's kind of embarrassing, really, because it's a huge question. Although people are, are, are circling around this in terms of use of scribes and physician extenders and those kinds of things. Yeah. But let me just say, if there's anybody listening who sits on the Emergency Medicine Foundation, we need to get a grant and start studying what is the ideal staffing ratio pattern in emergency departments. We haven't done it. And it's much more important than another study on uh, on uh, radical scavengers in patients, patients who've arrested. So now we've talked about all of the reasons that you're rightly uh, able to be depre- uh, depressed and burned out. Yeah. You're, you have good reason. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So what There's are you going to do? There's lots of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I think that um, it's really important for physicians to understand that they have a fabulous gift in this career of being an emergency physician. They got a ticket to ride. It's unbelievable. And if you just do some basic calculations, uh, say for the sake of discussion, you make $300,000 a year and you're going to have a 25-year career, that's $7.5 million. Excuse me, can I get that job? I mean, you know, I'm just a simple poor country boy. Your career is worth seven to nine million dollars, and uh, I'd like you to suggest, uh, like to suggest to you that you paint this in the pr- uh, perspective of I need to protect this opportunity. Mm-hmm. I need to nurture this. I need to invest in this career and not basically screw it up so that it is prematurely destroyed. By the way, we used to think of a career and a lot of jobs as oh, twenty-five or thirty years. I think if you're a Los Angeles policeman, it's 12 to 15 years, something like that. Before 80% they retire. full retirement. Full retirement, after, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that number is wrong. I mean, Rick, if you look at you and I, we started in this business 40-some years ago. Uh, you know, If you count medical school, we've been talking about medicine for 43 or 45 years. It's not going to be you've – you've got to plan things here – over a period of time, and uh, anybody who thinks that this is a short-term career, <laughs> you're just wrong. So there's a lot of money at stake here that needs to be protected <clears throat> right. by actively protecting it. It's just not going to happen. Right. It doesn't happen by itself, and the first thing is to recognize the difference between a marathon and a 100-yard dash. I guess it's 100 meters these days, but the point is we're not sprinters. We're marathon runners. You have to show up over the next 40 years doing things. And, and I think that without a perspective on what you're going to add to your career and how you're going to mature the career over time, that leads to burnout. You know, a lot of these young physicians get out of their residency and they may have a, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt and uh, they uh, think that I've got to get this paid off kind of thing. And so they start start working multiple jobs, long shifts, um, lots of hours a month. And I think that that is a fundamental mistake. That 100000 or $200,000 that, that those doctors owe is of no consequence. It will be paid off easily over some 10-year period. It is nothing. And I, I keep on hearing people beating their chest about how much money they owe. The fact, I, there's no career that I know of where you... One day you're making $40,000, and the next day you're making $250,000. There's nothing like that. Well, we're one of the few careers that has a guaranteed job opportunity 
Uh, you know, the great joke at the University of Michigan right now is uh, how do you get a recent U of M uh, liberal arts graduate off your porch? Pay for the pizza. <laughs> and and I, I think that's exactly right. One thing about medicine is the chances you're going to work for a living are pretty damn good, and you ought to respect that. Uh, by the way, uh, I have two times of a residence. Those who... Um, are miserly to the point of unbelievability. And I've got another group of super consumers who feel they, they now deserve a new Ferrari uh, at a 12-bedroom house at a summer cottage and, and all this kind of stuff. They start running up debt, which is crazy. And then they become a slave to paying off their bills. And I think that causes burnout as well, particularly now when they've got a second and third wife Oh, my God. Yeah, basically, undue consumption is a risk because it'll put you in a corner where you cannot say no. You break your leg and you, go, and you have to declare bankruptcy. Uh, you, you have to really protect yourself in that regard because uh, we like doctors, as, as ER directors, we like doctors who cannot say no. Uh, Frank, we need you to work Christmas. Uh, right. Okay, uh, how about New Year's? Okay, fine. Uh, Fourth of July, okay, too. I don't want any independently rich playboys. I want some guy with three kids, three hundred thousand bucks in debt, who's grateful for the shift. Exactly. Exactly, and and um, so be careful. Don't get into the position. Okay, I suffered all of these years to become a resident, and now I've graduated, and it's not my turn for the turbo Porsche. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. Don't do that. Big mistake. Tell the monkey story, Rick. Oh, uh, the monkey story. You know the way you capture monkeys. Um, you get a coconut and you make a hole in the coconut and then you put some uh, candies in the into the coconut and the monkey comes along and he sticks his hand in the coconut and he and he grabs the, the candies in the coconut and in the process he makes a fist and he now cannot pull his hand out of the hole where the he put it, it, it because there's a fist is there now and so he can't climb up the tree and that's how you catch monkeys is you just you just tease them with all of these nice little things that where they cannot escape, and we do that to doctors all the time. So, yeah, we love doctors who can't say no, but you don't want to be a doctor in a position who has to work all of the shifts because you're uh, encumbered yourself with a lot of expenses. Yeah, you know, it's almost embarrassing to talk about the next uh, problem, Rick, be, or the next solution. We're great examples of this. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, as we're about to have a an In-N-Out burger for lunch, uh, recurrent exercise, plenty of sleep, adequate time off. Uh, you know, we should have taken this advice when we were young, but we didn't. No, so what, what, what can true. I tell we you? Did. We're still here. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that everybody who talks about burnout talks about these things. Right. And, you know, you can get really specific about how much exercise and those kinds of things. But since Greg and I have no frame of reference on this whatsoever, <laughs> we, we are not in a position to advise you on how to exercise. Well, you know, it, and it's interesting, too, that the doctor attitude is I'm a doc. I know what to do. They rarely get their own physician uh, who can take care of them. Yeah, we have one study. One third of physicians do not have a personal physician, and uh, 
you're getting older and when you're younger you're fairly invincible and you believe you are but the fact of the matter is is i think over time you need to know your numbers because your blood pressure is going to creep up your blood sugar is going to creep up your cholesterol is going to creep up and you, this is all about nipping this stuff in the bud and so even though you're a turk at 35 you ought to get yourself a doctor and and get some routine kinds of things and i think you need to know your numbers that's part of this investment in maintaining this seven million dollar career that you have exactly Uh, this is this is uh honing the machine you know occasionally if you've got a great lawnmower you do have to drain the oil you have to grease it you have to do few things to it to keep it running and i think that's probably true and one of the things that is is maybe most important is to develop some interests that that may be tangential to medicine but are not medicine that you can get a perspective of how other people think. You know, I, I sat on the board of the community ambulance uh, for years and years, and, and I was the only doc at that time on the board. So I br- brought a certain amount of expertise to the question, but to hear how other people interact and think and, and all these sorts of things, I think it made me a better doctor. The idea of having interest outside of a medicine that you're cultivating and trying to get good at whether it's being you know the coach for your kids sports teams or developing a hobby or getting into woodworking or something like that where you can develop some passion for it it's a it's a no-brainer that you basically will decrease your risks of burnout by having outside interests that are substantive that you really like to pursue yep uh, the the and expanding your medically related horizons is important too. I I give some talks to the residents on how are you going to keep up when once you're out of residency, because it's real easy to stay current when all you're doing is interacting with people in a training environment. When you've got uh, three kids, a mortgage, uh, some sick parents, what are you going to do to maintain excellence in medicine? which is on a time-compressed basis so that you have time for the rest of your life. I think, I think that uh, it, it's more difficult than we can imagine, not because there's so much great information out there, but it's buried in a lot of trash. And if you actually sat and read every new article in the New England Journal, it'd kill you. It'd kill your brain. You cannot actually do it. There is this idea of diversifying within the scope of emergency medicine. So we talked about, you know, your hobbies and your woodworking and those kinds of things. But there are opportunities and people have found that those people who extend themselves within the sphere of emergency medicine have more enjoyable careers. So there's, you know, the opportunity to do writing uh, or teaching or consulting or mentoring or, uh, or, re- or research or medical politics. Like in your group, you could become, try to become the, you know, the director of your group over time. Or the, at the hospital, there's the executive medical committee and the, uh, and the PI uh, committee and those kinds of things. Even getting onto the hospital's foundation, local EMS, Go over there and go over to the fire department. They'll love you if you do that, you know, and you get involved in giving them some some classes. State or national ASAP, there's all kinds of opportunities uh, for physicians who are expressing an interest to get involved in those things. You meet additional people. You meet some smart people. You, you get a different perspective, and it's all within the scope of emergency medicine. There's no question, though, Rick, that the, the number one thing that gives doctors uh, ego strength, 
interest is to still be an excellent physician. And so you need to be able to, to find a way to stay up with change, to go to conferences. I think that this is not a tack-on or an add-on. It's intrinsically, uh, intrinsically involved with advancing your own mind and, and soul on these, on these issues. I distrust docs who say, well, you know, I can't really get away to a conference ever. I can't do this ever. I can't do that ever. If you don't make yourself excellent, because in truth, every day patients are going to come in who will challenge your medical abilities, and you need to be functioning up near the top there where, where what's the current data, what's currently being said and done. Yeah, you need to invest in yourself. So this, your product is your medical knowledge. And um, as we mentioned, this is requires grooming and an investment. This is part of the seven, nine million dollar, uh, the, um, the goal there. And the fact is, is that you want to be considered by yourself and your colleagues as a particularly good doctor. And the only way to do that is to commit to ongoing education. There's, you just can't, you'll, you, if you coast after your residency, you're going to get in big trouble after a period of time. There's no question about that. And that, that a, an area that no doctor wants to talk about, but which is absolutely necessary, it's very funny that in, in medicine, we don't really want to talk about the money. Uh, and we don't want to talk about the politics. The truth of the matter is that in the next couple of years, the biggest changes coming in medicine are not new therapies for cancer. It's not a, a new way to do CPR. It's how we're going to get paid and how we're going to divide up the money. Now, you can be one of two things. You can be a victim of this economic tsunami, or you can build a surfboard and ride this thing out. And I think docs who stay up with what's going on and get involved, it's amazing how a few doctors committed up at the state house, uh, Lansing, Michigan, Sacramento, California, can actually influence uh, the outcomes on a lot of these decisions. And there's no question that physician burnout and depression are, are increased by financial questions. Um, and when you feel that you haven't been treated fairly, uh, depression comes on. Right. Remember the uh, Maslach three elements, and one of the elements was a feeling of inefficacy, uh, uh, a feeling of lack of competence and Imp impotence in in getting things done. And so you must, must, must invest in continuing your education. Obviously, you need to subscribe to emergency medical abstracts. You need to go to the EMA courses. You need to subscribe to MRAP. Those kinds of things are pa relatively painless ways each month of, of staying up to date. Now, was that a commercial? Or, uh, yeah, yes, I it is, Rick. You can't, okay. you can't do any more of those. Uh, but but uh, I also think that finding the environment uh, which meets your personality is important. I think there's a fair number of emergency docs who at a certain age, the crazy, hectic, continuously um, degenerating department becomes harder and harder to work in. I, when, when I do advisement work for groups, we often try and find, as you age, other activities for emergency docs, such as a certain number of, of, uh, of urgent care shifts, a certain number of, of fast track, a certain number of industrial medicine, all these things which, as we age 
may actually be what, what gives our career longevity simply because every day isn't, you know, the, the day from hell in the department. And uh, I know a lot of places where everybody expects to be on the edge when they leave. Why? Because every day's a bad day. And, and I don't think that's the way to mature your career. A couple of years ago, a doctor came up to me and we were talking and he was basically bemoaning his fate working at a highly chaotic, stressful, oh, uh, you know, too many patients, not enough staff, not enough backup. You know the story. And uh, he was miserable. And I said, uh, well, why don't you change your job? I mean, you're not going to change this place. So then you have an opportunity to change your job. And I saw him at the most recent ASAP meeting, and we got to talking again. And sure enough, he changed his job. And it was like he was kissing my feet because I gave him such a, like, you know, really radical advice. Like, you can change your job. You're not locked here. And uh, I think that that's Rick, you're important. A, Rick, you're a damn genius. I mean, <laughs> you'd come up with the exact right answer to this. Well, if there are tons and tons of jobs in emergency medicine that are really very tolerable, and there are others which are ridiculous. Well, I'll I'll tell you the uh, the great story. The first time I was invited to speak at the um, Urgent Care Association of America meeting, uh, I kind of wondered who these people were, and I looked at the first twelve or fifteen rows. They're everybody I spoke to at ASEP for years. They've now decided they want a different life, some control, that sort of thing. And there they were. And, and they've now decided to go into urgent care medicine. And as I spoke to those guys, they said, we get to select our patients. We can say no. We get to go home at, at 1130 at night. Um, you know, there are things you can do to make the practice a little more tolerable. No yeah, question. I think one of the things doctors should try to do to the extent they can, and often in groups, this is often difficult to determine, but remember, we you need to believe that you're adequately paid. You need to believe that the work environment that you're in is reasonable. And, um, you know, some people see three and a half patients an hour and they think that that's reasonable. And other people see two people an hour and think that that's reasonable. The truth is more like somewhere in the middle. But uh, if you're seeing three and a half patients an hour routinely, you're going to you're, you're going to burn out. That, that volume is just – I shouldn't say that. Some people are going to burn out because I do see some people whose wiring is such that they are able to do things that other doctors just cannot do. Yeah, I don't think that's – the only determiner, though, Rick, if if you set up the system whereby what you're doing for those three and a half patients per hour is the true intellectual input of a doctor, that's fine. If you're the guy having to run around and find the slit lamp, if you're the guy who has to find where the splinting casting materials are, that's where burnout comes from, is not having a system which is dependable and predictable you you heard about the the great study they did with monkeys and uh with the the, coconuts not with the coconuts (laughs) this is the one where they had the light come on and the monkey pushed a button and uh got a little pellet of food now if he didn't do that he got an electric shock uh what they did with with the monkeys is they then disconnected the wire or whatever it was so it didn't make any difference whether he he uh, pushed the button or not, and there was no logical association between the light and the button and food. All of those monkeys developed ulcers and basically wanted to kill themselves. Why? Unpredictability 
of, of what's going on. And I think that's burnout in emergency medicine all the way. One of the other things that to try to do is to try to be able to affect your working environment. It's, um, as we noted in the past, it's very depressing for physicians to feel that they have no impact at all in the, in the uh, way things happen in their department and that they must conform to some systems that which may not be uh, particularly reasonable. So uh, to the extent that physicians get involved in, uh, as a group, uh, guys, how can we make this better? Um, what, what are the issues we're having? How can we make our department better, more efficient? more patient satisfaction, more, more staff satisfaction, those kinds of things. Um, I think that that's a good thing, and you should actively try to get involved in that. To the extent that you are passively being told what to do, that's, that's not going to work out. Yeah, and Rick and I uh, understand that we're asking you to do the hardest job possible in medicine. It's very easy to listen to a program like this and get a – a one, two, three list of things to do for against medical advice, all that sort of thing. The much bigger issues are these. Chance favors the prepared mind. If you've built a system that works and treats you well, the chances you're going to get sued are less and less. The more you're frustrated, the more you're anxious, the more that you feel the job is not dealing uh, dealing well with you, the tougher it is to take care of patients. And I would point out the fact that uh, you need the courage to approach this situation remembering this. For most of us, this is the best job we're ever going to get. What are you going to do that's going to make more money than this, Rick? Nothing. Nothing. That's right. If, 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 I, could, if I could be Kenny Chesney, I would be. If, if I was Yo-Yo Ma, I would be. But I'm not. <laughs> this is the skill set that I have, and so what I need to do is maximize it and not depend on fate to, uh, to take care of me. Well, my view is, honestly, this is an extraordinary gift. So we went to school for four years of college, four years of medical school, three or four years of residency, and then for the next 30 or 35 years, you have the prerogative to earn $300,000 a year or more. When you look at the, the percentage of the population that has that opportunity, we're talking about less than 1%. And we are there. We are so fortunate. And so the idea of trying to protect this and nurture this career is really, really important. So there are lots of things that you can do to screw it up, and there's lots of things that you can do to kind of protect it. One of the things that I think is really important is to recognize one of your colleagues who is is starting to show the signs of burnout and to uh, be willing to intervene in those cases. It's hard because they don't uh, want to acknowledge that they're burned out. They think they hide it well, but they don't because all the nurses and all the doctors know that this person has got some issues. And I think what you need to do is you need to have the courage to go up and say, Frank, you know, um, you're a friend and I'm and I'll tell you the truth, I'm a little concerned. I've been noticing, and the, and the other nur- and the nurses have been noticing that you've been a little curt with the patients lately. Is there something going on that we can help you with? Or is there? Do you need to take a break because uh, we don't want you to keep on going down, sliding down this slope? So let 
we want to be friends. We want to help you. And those of you who have big groups, like Greg, you had a big group. Yep. I think that you have a responsibility to take these doctors who have given their their life and soul for you for you know five and ten years, that when they're starting to falter, that you have a mechanism to try to help them. There's no question that the toughest times I had as a director with the group was uh, confronting a doctor at the end of the shift when we thought there was drug abuse problems and 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 being being you know the tough guy to say we got to take care of this now and um some of the better successes i had in my career were uh, were saving the job and career of docs uh who were right on that edge of falling into the abyss uh that's that's a director's role and job and if you're not conscious of it or aware of it who's going to be it's embarrassing when the nurses have to come to us and say dr so-and-so has a problem we should be knowing that dr so-and-so has a problem but quite frankly we don't frequently i think that the larger groups have the capacity to deal with this but um you know the single contract groups they may not be in the same position because i gotta believe that these large groups have programs in place to help doctors who are faltering. Well, some do and some don't. And, and the, the real problem is this. In a, very, in a small group, uh, the problem with a Democratic group is a vote of 9 to 1 is a tie. Uh, it's very hard to uh, get rid of, discipline, uh, change the behavior of somebody who doesn't feel that they have a boss or somebody who is monitoring exactly what they're doing. And, and the real approach to those folks is you are endangering the jobs of all of us. And when you're not doing a good job, you are, because it affects the malpractice rates. It affects the long-term contract with the hospital. It may affect the volumes. It can affect a lot of things. And I think that uh, it does take courage on the part of a director to be not confrontational, but to at least be aware of the situation and not to back away or look the other way when there's a problem. But I think also the idea of having a positive attitude, uh, because it's very easy to be punitive. You, you, you know, your right. doctor, you've been a jerk now to the patients. You're getting more complaints. And if you don't get uh, straightened out your act, you're going to get out of here. Right. That's one way to look at it. But the, the other way is, you know, you've been with us for a long time. Uh, you've been a doctor, a good doctor for a long time. We want you What's, to succeed. Right? Yeah, exactly. What's happening now? How can we help you? Does it, you know, does it mean that we need to have shorter shifts, or do you need to take a month off? You know, those kinds of things to try to accommodate somebody who's worked for you for a long time. Yep, and and I've certainly seen an inter. You know, one thing about an intervention like that, they thank you for it later. You're savoring uh, their career. You're, you're, you're providing them a, a safety net for the career. It's exactly you get, right. If you get fired from one job, you're going to have a hard time getting another job. Right, right. It's not like the old days. Um, there, are, there are a lot of good young people in emergency medicine, and to think you're going to wander into a city like San Diego and just get a perfect job tomorrow, the answer is no, no it's not going to happen. I remember... Uh, it was probably 25 years ago. It was not at the hospital where I've been for a long time, but prior to that. And um, uh, one of the nurses, the head nurse, came up to me one day and said, um, 
you know, Dr. Bucata, uh, are you, you know, are things okay? We, we kind of noticed that you've been a little, you know, short with the patients lately. And um, can, is there anything going on that we can help you with? And, uh, you know, I might have been going through some, you know, some issues at the time. I don't frankly recall. But what I do remember is the courage of that nurse to approach me and, and, and because everybody thinks they're hiding it and they're faking it, but, but everybody else sees it. Right. And um, what I remember about that is um, how good I felt about her willingness to come to me as a friend and, and point it out. And, you know, I, I don't know what I was doing at the time, but I straightened myself out. And I'm encouraging all of you out there to see – if you have see a friend, whether it be a nurse or a doctor – who is starting to deteriorate in terms of the quality of their performance, not necessarily medically, but on the interpersonal side, please, please, please have the courage to go up to them and, 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 and not confront them, but to you know, do it in a, a positive way and say, you know, we're here to help you if, you're, if there's some issues. You're one of our friends. You're our, we don't want you to suffer, and you don't want, we don't want you to have our patients suffer. So I think it's important. I do think it takes courage. You know, Rick, uh, this this issue has been a little bit of a variant from what we usually do in uh, Risk Management Monthly, but I think it's absolutely integral to the total risk management picture that you keep the one the one issue that is the doctor who's supplying the service. You keep him as good as he can be to himself. And if he is good to himself, he'll be good to others. And that's really where we need to be. I remember at, at, you mentioned earlier about doctors in the doctor's dining room who say, uh, uh, I, I don't like this anymore. I, I'm going to get out of here. I should have gone into this or that kind of thing. And um, my sense of that is the arrogance of these physicians to think that they can do anything or have any skill set that would earn them a third of a million dollars. The fact is, is that they don't have any skills. And um, and so the, the distal it is, there's nothing out there that's going to pay you a quarter of what you're getting now. So the answer to this problem is learn to love the one you're with. Yeah, that's Remember right. Remember that song? Yeah, yes, right. And, and the one you're with is with emergency medicine. You, you are there. You've got to learn to love it. You, if you don't learn to love it, there's nothing that you're going to be able to do on the outside that's going to earn you anything near what you're making now. So this is why it's so important to nurture this fabulous gift that we have. Is this the time when we say amen, brother? Because uh, because uh, thank you, thank you, brother Bukata, for uh, for ministering to us on that issue. And I uh, well, it's so important. But I, but it I, is. I do agree with it. And uh, I think that we too narrowly define the the job as director of the department. One of those jobs is to know your people and when they need help and, and to get it for them. All right, Greg, I think we're caught, uh, you know, pretty much near the end of our rope here. Yes, we <laughs> uh, are. Wine of the month? Wine of the month. You're going to wander with me now, um, Rick, into the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, this is an area of wine making that is not as well known as Napa, but is coming up so fast and is so strong. And I want to give the, the readers some, some really good suggestions. Uh, Calera, uh, 2010, their Van Gris, uh, which, uh, of, uh, Pinot Noir. 
This is a rosé. Now, before you stick up your nose and all the wine snobs say, oh, rosé, I mean, you might as well do Mad Dog 2020. The answer is no. This is a subtle wine. It's wonderful wine. Even the wine advocate says this ranks with the rosés of Europe, no trouble. In fact, when they kind of do their testing, um, you know, the American wines are kicking the French all over the place. And we ought to recognize that. That these are these are great wines, and if you uh, Antonio uh, Galeone, who who did this review in the Wine Advocate, uh, basically said loaded with class and personality, equal to the great wines of Europe. Sixteen bucks a bottle, Rick. I'm sure if you bought it at Costco, it's even cheaper. We talked about La Crema a few months ago. That was my wine of the month. I opened your refrigerator last night and there's a bottle of La Creme. That's Diane's it? favorite. Oh my God. But uh, this is the kind of stuff our, our, our people need. Uh, it, it's a, um, again, Wine Advocate uh, 90. And if you want to know more about it, where to get it, it's www.calera, C-A-L-E-R-A, wine.com. And uh, they'll supply you with what you need. The other one I'll tell you about is a, an up-and-coming, very small winery called Foxglove, 2009 Cabernet Sauvignon, another great wine, 15 bucks a bottle. Even Mel, if Mel were here, would have to say, Greg, you're going in the right direction now. Um, I can't tell you about a wine for $2, you know, two-buck chuck today, but if you want to spend some money, the Santa Cruz Mountain area... The Paso Robles uh, area of winemaking has become terrific. Well, thank you, Greg. Uh, what about the Rolling Rock? <laughs> Nothing to say about Rolling Rock. I, I, I'm not reviewing beer, and, and that's just the way it is. Well, Thanks. this is the December issue, and I, I think it's kind of a great month um, to reconnect the family, the 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 uh, relationships it's uh it's a it's a nice month i like it yeah and i it's a it's the best month to remember that uh, this is risk management monthly but 19,999 patients out of 20,000 don't sue you it's about 1 in 20,000 across the united states you know uh, be appreciative to those people who have been kind enough to bring their children to you for care. And uh, in the long run, it's still a pretty damn good way to make a living. I think it's a ter- tremendous profession. Uh, I wouldn't, there's nothing else that I would rather do. Nope. All right. Well, closing up for the year, this is Greg Henry. Rick Bucata. And we're saying goodbye from Casa, uh, uh, from, from, from uh, Casa, what, what do we call this place? This is paid off. <laughs> this isn't Casa. This is Casa Ricky Bucata due to the generosity of his parents. Yeah, well, it's, it's a beautiful place and uh, it's been a joy. Bye-bye. Talk with you next time. <laughs>